Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve others sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. Good morning. Glad you are here this morning. Let's, uh, let's take a moment and pray. Father, we uh, want to recognize your presence in our midst this morning because your spirit dwells your people, and that means you are here. So, Lord, we ask this morning not only that you would be here, but you would be at work as we wrestle with this issue of doubt, which we all at times struggle with. Um, help us to, to understand a bit more of ourselves and you and how to move forward in our faith so that we can serve you better, love you more, and be effective for your kingdom in our world. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake, amen. You know, if you ask historians, if you took a poll and asked them what, who was the, the greatest preacher in all of history? Um, other than Jesus, I think a name that would be at the top of most people's list is a man named Charles Haddon Spurgeon who lived in the, the 19th century. Um, he's always been one of my heroes. Actually, I, uh, my son's middle name is Haddon, and that's because of Spurgeon. Um, Anyway, he was uh, a great Christian, had an incredible ministry, great preacher. But once he confessed this, on a sudden, the thought crossed my mind, which I abhorred but could not conquer, that there was no God, no Christ, no heaven, no hell, and that all my prayers were but a farce, and that I might as well have whistled to the winds or spoken to the howling waves. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon had moments of doubt. And, and if we're honest, I think we can probably relate. I am convinced that doubt is a universal experience. We don't necessarily talk about it much or admit it, especially in church, but we know what it's like to be there. We're in a series wrestling with that issue called Faith and Doubt. And this morning, we want to have a bit of a conversation around the question, what do I do when I doubt. And normally we look at a, a passage of scripture and try to explain it and apply it. We're committed to this notion of exposition. But there's not a passage that explicitly deals with this issue of doubt and deconstruction. So I'm going to pull from a, a lot of different places and uh, um, reading this morning. So it's a, a bit different that way. But I want to start... Um, by looking at four terms that I think we need to understand, Elliot gave us some background on these last week, so this first movement will overlap with that a bit, but to help us think about the nature of doubt and deconstruction. Then, I want to ask a question, and the question is, why are so many more people experiencing doubt and deconstructing their faith? What's, what's going on around us and in our culture that's making that happy, happen? And then finally, I want to come back and give us a number of principles that I think can help us when we find ourselves in that place, okay? 
So the nature of doubt and deconstruction, I think it's helpful to understand these four terms. The first one is the word doubt itself. And that's pretty simple. Doubt is simply the feeling of uncertainty. Um, when you go to scripture, though, doubt can be a complex thing. There's intellectual doubt and relational doubt and existential doubt. And that's why you find scripture all over the place uh, uh, when it deals with it. Sometimes seeing it as a good and healthy thing, sometimes thinking, seeing it as a uh, a dangerous thing and sometimes destructive. Um, a lot of times when I think about doubt, I, I think about, um, it's like planting a tree in the wind that blows against it. Uh, when you plant a new tree that has a tree ball, one of the things you have to do is you have to stake the tree because the roots have not developed. And if you don't, the wind will blow it over. So you stake it. But I don't know if you know this, but after a couple of years, you have to take those stakes away. Because if you don't, the tree will never develop strength in its trunk and its root to withstand the winds. And the wind pushing against it helps develop that strength. If the wind gets too strong, it blows it over. But you don't want to have no wind at all because it makes for a weak tree. I think that's how doubt functions in our life. It pushes pressure on us to know what we believe and think through what we believe and become convinced to some degree of what we believe and in the end can make us stronger in our faith. It's kind of like the immune system of our faith. Deconstruction is the process of taking apart and examining an idea or tradition or practice or belief to determine its truthfulness, its usefulness, and importance. Now what is interesting, if you think about it, doubt and deconstruction are typically linked, right? Doubt is the stimulus and deconstruction is the process. So you wonder about something, you're uncertain, you begin to deconstruct, think about it, question it, challenge it. Uh, um, and again, deconstruction, I think, is a good thing. In fact, oftentimes necessary, right? Here's why. Because many times our understanding of God is not correct. Go figure. Sometimes we're wrong in how we think about God, and that needs corrected, and the way that gets corrected is through this process of deconstruction. So it can be a good thing. Reconstruction, then, is putting the pieces back together, uh, most likely in a different way, hopefully in a more healthy way, hopefully in a way that makes your faith deeper and stronger. The last notion is demolition, and, and that is this idea that it's deconstruction that goes too far. It attacks the foundation uh, of the faith, and there's no attempt to rebuild. And if you go through demolition, you end up in the camp of unbelief or apostasy. And what I find is that people who are in the demolition mode, they're not so much motivated by doubt as they are maybe by anger or hurt. And that's a dangerous thing to go through. So with that in mind, a couple keys to remember. First, doubt is normal. Deconstruction is normal. They're part of the development of Christian faith. Barna has surveyed people and found out two-thirds have experienced some kind of spiritual doubt where they question their, their beliefs and their religion, two-thirds. I think the other third is lying. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I, a lot of times I think of this whole thing of doubt and reconstruction as like remodeling a house. You live in a house, and over time, uh, it works for you, but, but eventually it starts not to work for you. Your circumstances may have changed, or your needs 
are different or you're at a different point of life, your perspective is little, what you like is different. So you begin thinking about remodeling the house because the old design just doesn't work, doesn't fit with where you're at. That's kind of the doubt piece. So what do you do? You deconstruct, tear some things down, reconfigure some things, and reconstruct uh, um, to make it function better. And hopefully you do it, right, without demolishing the foundation. You don't want to destroy the house. If you do it well, the house can be far more functional. Uh, um, it, it, the, that's the way it is with doubt and reconstruction. If you do it well, reconstruct well, your faith can end up deeper and, and, and much stronger than it was before. So if that is true, if doubt is normal, then we don't have to go to the extremes. You know, there's some people who are on the progressive side of Christianity who, who look at doubt as almost, or deconstruction as almost, if it's something heroic. And then there's the other side, the conservative fundamentalists, who, who look at doubt and deconstruction as, it's just sin. And I want to suggest to you, it's not heroic and it's not sin. It's just part of the development of faith. It's a normal part of growth. And if that's true, then when you're in that moment in time where you're doubting, deconstructing, and wrestling, you don't have to be ashamed or embarrassed or hide the struggle from everyone. Okay? It, it, it's part of the development of faith. And, and that means if it's normal, then we have to create space for doubt and doubters. It's interesting to me that Jesus did that. If you look at John 20, dealing with Thomas. Remember, J Jesus shows up to the disciples and Thomas is not there. And he leaves, and then Thomas comes back, and they tell him, hey, hey, we saw Jesus. And Thomas is going, you guys are nuts. <laughs> and he says this, he says, I won't believe unless I can put my fingers into the wounds in his hands and my hand into the wound in his side. He's doubting. That's why we know him as doubting Thomas. Well, you know what's interesting? Jesus doesn't freak out when Thomas is having his doubts. In fact, Jesus doesn't even show up for another week. He's really patient. He just lets him sit in his doubt. A week later, Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, he doesn't belittle Thomas. He doesn't embarrass him. He, he, he doesn't attack him. He, he just, you know what he does? He gives him the evidence. He says, here, Thomas, put your finger in my wound. Put your hand in my side. You so... Uh, Jesus is patient with those who doubt. Jude chapter, uh, verse 22 of the book of Jude says, be merciful to those who doubt. And, and here at Waterstone, we want to be that kind of church. We want to be merciful to those who doubt and help it be a healthy thing. Brian Zond, you know, his book, Everything on Fire, says this. He says, the trend of deconstruction is so deeply rooted in current Western culture that being angry at people for losing their faith is like being angry at medieval people for dying from the plague. Okay? Don't be angry. Um, people just don't wake up in the morning and think, you know, I, I think it's a good day for me to deconstruct my faith and doubt everything. It just happens to them. They don't decide. They don't decide. I wrestle with doubt and have often. And it has caused me to deconstruct my faith numerous times in my life. 
Oftentimes it has been on an intellectual level. A couple of years after I became a believer, I, I sat back and I thought, what have I bought into? Can I really believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and this notion of resurrection? I mean, really? And I tried to be as objective as I could and stand back and kind of evaluate that and the evidence for it and against it. It was a good thing. Sometimes I have wrestled with doubt and deconstructed on a doctrinal level. I mean, the essence of my faith is still solid uh, in terms of theology, but my, the rest of my theology, it has shifted uh, um, in significant ways. It's de been deconstructed and reconstructed. In fact, that's an ongoing process for me. My theology is not what it used to be. It's changed and it's still changing, and I wrestle with things. But at times, probably the hardest doubt I've gone through is the relational trust level of doubt. The last three years have been hard. Most of you know that my wife, Barb, um, got an infection in her spine after she had an infection in her hip that gave her neuropathy. But this infection in her spine caused her to be paralyzed, and um, at one point she was paralyzed from the neck on down. Uh, she went to Craig, did rehabilitation, made huge progress, even got her driving license. Scary thought. Um, but the last six months has been absolute hell for her. Um, her back continues to deteriorate, and we found out this, this week that she has to have another surgery to fuse her whole back. There's only a little section that's not, but they have to fuse her whole back or she'll just live with this pain that's unbearable. Um, you know, her situation has impacted everything in our lives. Um, impacted my ministry, impacted her work, impacted all of my kids. One of my kids moved back from Wisconsin to be here and kind of put a halt on her career. One of my kids moved in with us for over two years. One of my kids had to completely take over her business. One of my kids who lives in Nashville flies in every couple of months just to, to help out. I mean, it, it's just wreaked havoc in our lives. And I have to tell you that uh, um, I wrestle, you know, with, God, how, how, how could you let this happen? Where are you in the midst of this? And I'm, I, I'm struggling to trust you. And I don't want you to mishear me. There have been incredible God moments where he seems to have shown up. But mostly he seems absent. Um, and I, there are times where I wrestle just on an existential level. God, are you even real? Or are you, are you just part of my imagination? Um, you know, and it's had an impact on my faith. Today I'm far less dogmatic in my beliefs and far less certain in my faith. Realizing that certainty, though, isn't the goal, that trust is. But that's part, part of Christian faith. So anyway, that's the nature of doubt and deconstruction. Let's shift a bit then and ask the question, why are so many people experiencing this experience of doubt or wrestling with their faith? 
Um, and I, I think it's important to, to understand this because I think when you enter into this period of deconstruction and doubt, uh, um, at, at the moment that happens, it feels like your life is a tangled mess of yarn, <laughs> you, you know, after the cat got it and you're trying to unravel it and you're not sure how to do that. Sometimes if you know what's underneath your doubts, it helps to untangle the mess. So I've spent a lot of time wrestling with this issue, reading, listening to people. Here are some of the key things that have risen to the surface as I've talked with folks as to why they wrestle and deconstruct and doubt. First one. For some, it's what seems to be the inconsistency of God with himself. I mean, right? God is supposed to be loving, um, but sometimes he doesn't seem very loving, especially when you read through the scriptures and you discover this, the genocide of the Canaanites and the destruction of all those people who lived before the flood. And then at times it seems like God is okay with slavery or religious violence or stoning people or the mistreatment of women or polygamy. He just seems to allow that. And then there's God's wrath and this thing called hell. And at times God seems pretty petty and mean. How does that all fit together with a God who, at his essence, is love? For some people, the second issue is science and the Bible. They seem to collide on just too many things. For some people, it feels like you either have to choose, you know, a six-day creation and deny science or choose evolution and, and uh, deny the Bible. And you begin to think, you know, if the Bible can't be trusted to be scientifically correct and historically accurate, then can it really have much to say about the big questions of life? I mean, around meaning and ethics and purpose and values and how we should live. Makes people doubt. And then there's the the presence of, of rampant suffering and justice. For many, it's what they experience in their own life, or it's just what they see when they look out on the world large. God seems absent and uninvolved, or at best, disinterested. The experience of life does not seem consistent with an all-loving, all-powerful God who is involved in every detail of life. That just seems, for some, hard to put together. Other people doubt when they get exposed to the exclusivity of Christianity. For many, the the notion that Jesus is the only path to God causes them to question their faith. Isn't faith, um, to be honest, mostly a result of being raised in the church or having Christian parents or at least determined by our exposure to its claims? What happens to all those people who seek God but because of where and when they are born? (laughs) They don't have a clue. They have never heard the gospel They don't even know who Jesus is. That doesn't seem to make sense or fair that they should be excluded. For some, doubt is caused by the hypocrisy of the church and of Christians. Uh, Some have noted that the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. Uh, Paul and Alyssa have been doing this podcast called Monday Morning Phone Calls, and they did one on the issue of doubt and when they were talking about some of the causes, and Alyssa made the comment that on the January 6th, when she was uh, 
watching what was going on and, and saw this image when the capital was attacked of a noose and a cross. That really was hard for her to reconcile, and I get it, that is. For many, the political involvement of the church with the far right and the rise of Christian nationalism uh, um, makes people wonder, how does that fit in the Christian faith? How does any of that align with, with Christ's compassion and values on, in his heart when it seems to be motivated by hatred and race and selfishness? And, and here's the point. If the Spirit indwells his church, why is there this inconsistency? Why is there so much sexual abuse in the church and the misuse of power and unconfronted hypocrisy? And why does it get so hidden? I mean, the church is supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, but oftentimes when we look at it, it doesn't seem like it is. And then there's... Uh, well, I think one of the reasons all these things are troubling people is the fact that there's an explosion and an incredible availability of information on the internet and podcast. Just <laughs> if you want to challenge your faith, get on the podcast uh, on the internet, and you'll find people attacking it all the time. And that's especially difficult when you've grown up in an environment where your faith was protected. Uh, um, where you've been taught you're right and everybody else is wrong and everything is nailed down and there's no gray, everything is black and white. And suddenly, these people get exposed to not straw men, but real arguments against Christianity and it overwhelms them. And because they're into this black and white thinking, they think the only option they have is totally reject their faith. If you grew up in that environment, the chances of you deconstructing to unbelief and apostasy and shipwrecking your faith can be high. And sometimes, uh, just to be a little bit mundane, doubt can come because people are trying to rationalize a sinful lifestyle. This is not always the case. It's a possible issue. You know, w we can't live in dissonance. And if we want to live in a way that's inconsistent with our Christian convictions, sometimes it's just easier to jettison those convictions than change our lives. So, the thing all these reasons have in common is this. For these people, Christianity simply no longer makes sense to them. It no longer fits in how they see the world nor explains their experience. It's, it's fascinating when I talk to them, they're, they're, they're still attracted to Jesus. And they want it all to be true. They're just not sure how to put it together. Now, if you're hoping that I'm going to answer all those questions this morning, <laughs> I'm going to disappoint you. Don't mishear me. I think there are reasonable responses to all those issues. They are not simple. They're often complex. They're not always uh, totally satisfying. Um, not, none of those issues are simply black and white. Uh, you know, I would really encourage you to listen to the Monday morning phone call podcast. This last week, they've been wrestling with some of these issues. They talked about the reliability of the scriptures. Paul and Alyssa and Emily, who produces, uh, they're doing an incredible job. And what an awesome resource, so grab a hold of that. But what I do want to do this morning is give you a few principles to follow 
when you wrestle with doubt and deconstruct, that, that um, might help. Might help you get through to a place where it, the process strengthens your faith. Okay? So, so let me give you five things. First, don't do it alone. When you're wrestling with doubt and deconstructing, you need to find a community, a place where it's okay to walk the path and explore your faith. And you need a confidant, someone who will journey alongside you, listen, sympathize, and wrestle. In other words, what I'm saying is pay attention to horror movie advice, right? In a horror movie, the protagonist always makes the same mistake. I don't know if you thought about this. He or she wanders off alone into the dark, right? And meanwhile, the audience is screaming, don't do it, don't do it. They know what's going to happen. They know that being alone in the dark is the worst place you can be. We need support. We need the ear and the voice of a healthy Christian community around us. You've got to find somebody that you can really share with and share the struggle with who will listen without judgment and criticism. They cannot have faith for you. They cannot fix you. But just a word of advice. Be selective with who you share with. Two criteria. You want to make sure when you pick that person that what you share with them will not harm them, right? You're wrestling with your faith. shouldn't cause them to wrestle with their faith. <laughs> That's not good. And two, you want to make sure that they won't harm you. Some people don't know how to journey along with somebody in the midst of doubt. They don't know how to be a safe, patient, and trustworthy companion. Um, whoever you share with has to be able to hold a confidence and not simply defend. You know, God doesn't really need a defense. They don't need to attack. If you're the person that someone shares with, don't try to fix them. Don't try to defend God. He can defend himself. Don't feel like you have to have the answers. It's their journey, not your journey. Listen, give perspective, be compassionate, be patient. You know, people who are in the midst of doubt and deconstruction oftentimes are, are more clear on what they don't believe and less clear on what they do, and that takes time. Um, Takes time. And, and if you're that person they're trusting or sharing with, don't feel superior or smug. Right? Uh, I don't know if you've thought about this, but faith, the lack of doubt in a sense, is a gift. Ephesians 2.8 says that we are saved by faith, um, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Um, so, don't do it alone. Second, be careful and make sure you're not unintentionally creating God in your own image and making him simply into something you want him to be. There's an interesting story back in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 17. The king of Assyria has sent people from Assyria to occupy Samaria because he has deported the people. And, and they don't know how to worship Yahweh, and as a result, he brings some strange judgment on them in the form of lions. The uh, king of Assyria 
figures out what's going on. So he, he sends a priest down to Samaria to teach them who God is and how to worship him. And the priest does that. And then notice how the people respond. We get this in, in 2 Kings 17, 29. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and sent them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made in the high places. So these people are taught who God is, what he's like, how they are to worship him, but they don't like that. So what do they do? They create their own gods. We often do the same thing. Scott McKnight, a professor in New Testament, uh, in one of his classes, one of the things he does, he has incoming students write down uh, uh, what Jesus is like on a piece of paper and then put it away. Then he has them write down what they are like. Then take the two pieces of paper out and compare them. And more often than not, you know what? They're exactly the same. God created us in his image, and often we return the favor. Look, folks, we are called to follow Jesus, not necessarily like him. God is God. We cannot create an arbitrary standard of what we want God to be like or how we want God to act and then try to measure him up to that standard. He is who he is, and the truth of who he is doesn't depend on whether or not we like it or not. Truth is something outside of us, and God's reality is outside of us. And one of the ways you can know if you're doing that or not is simply this. If you like everything about God the God you serve, and who he is and what he doesn't, doesn't irritate you at times or make you stroll, then maybe the God you're worshiping isn't really God at all. <laughs> I mean, the reality of God and who he is and what he expects and what he desires should grate against us, right? Because it's the process of molding to him that is part of growth. Third, when you're in the midst of doubts, one of the things you have to do is always ask yourself, what is the alternative? In other words, if I decide that Christianity is not true, then what will I believe? You know, sometimes we think, oh, if I'm doubting and deconstructing, all I'm doing is really asking whether Christianity is true or not. That's not true. You're not doing that in a vacuum because if you're going to say it's not true, you have to place it, replace it with something else. What's the alternative? John 6, Jesus has begun to say things that are really strange. He's telling his followers that they have to eat his body and drink his blood. It's crazy stuff. And then he has this conversation. He realizes from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter is at his best here. He's answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? We have the you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. You know what Peter's saying is, is you answer the fundamental issues of life. If we walk away from you, how do we get those answered? How do we prescribe ethics? How do we find meaning and purpose? What's the better alternative? If you say, well, I'll just be an atheist. Well, then begin to think about the implications of that because what you're saying if you're an atheist is that the universe has always existed or created itself. That's a pill to swallow. And that a life rose from unconscious matter and chance. And if that's true, then 
human life has no intrinsic value. We, honestly, we are just sacks of water and chemicals with electrical impulses running through us. And, and that means there's no basis for calling anything good or evil, no longer a purpose to your existence. There's not an explanation for love and emotion and art or accomplishment. And, and if you're an atheist, in the end it all burns. Is that a better alternative? Can't that be doubted and deconstructed? And if you say, well, I don't need answers, I want to suggest to you that's a bit of a cop-out. You're just saying if, that, if I ignore the existential questions around uh, uh, meaning and purpose, I can just live. But you can't ignore those. What you're doing then is simply living an unreflective life, choosing to live in denial. And if you do that, when you do step back and think about it, you'll end up in nihilism. Because you have to reject any kind of morality or religious principles. And you're embracing the notion that life's meaningless, but you're not living like it. That's hypocrisy. See, the question is not simply, is Christianity true? But rather, is Christianity true? And if it's not, what's, what is? That's why Tim Keller says, you have to doubt your doubts. Question the alternatives as much as you do your faith. And look, folks, there will always be a gap, an uncertainty, a, a, a bit of pondering that has to be filled in by faith. That's the nature of faith. So forth. Leave room for mystery. I'm not sure we're always good at this in our tradition. But think about it. We, we are finite creatures, right? We are limited in our understanding and our intelligence. Um, and we are trying to make sense of an infinite being in an infinite universe. There will always be a gap between our understanding and his reality. And simply because we can't make sense of it all in our minds does not give us the warrant to assume he must not exist. Come on, folks. God is like the ocean. And our mental capacity and understanding of him is like a teaspoon of water. <laughs> it's arrogant that we can sit in judgment of him. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, the, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, For now we see through a glass darkly. We're not going to understand everything, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am also known. We only know a piece. I, I, this is not a cop-out. It's just the reality of, of faith. You see, it is the space between who God is and what we can know of God. It's in that space that faith resides. Philip Yancey pointed this out, and I think he's absolutely right. He says, God is the divine revealer and concealer. He will never reveal so much that it compromises our will. There will always be a bit of mystery and a gap in our understanding that leaves room for faith. 
Uh, Timothy Keller has this great quote. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Keller has pancreatic cancer, which is, is almost always terminal. And he's been writing about wrestling with this and his mortality and the issue of suffering. And he writes this. He's, it, it relates specifically to suffering, but it can be expanded to all of life. And I think it's really helpful. It's been helpful to me. We've become so confident in our powers of logic that if we cannot imagine any good reason that suffering exists, we assume there can't be one. But if there is a God great enough to merit our anger over the suffering you witness or endure, then there is a God great enough to have reasons for allowing it that you can't detect. It is not logical to believe in an infinite God and still be convinced that you can tally the sums of good and evil as he does or grow angry that he doesn't always see things your way. The point is that people say their suffering makes faith in God impossible, but it is in fact their overconfidence in themselves and their abilities that sets them up for anger, fear, and confusion. He's right. You see, folks, certainty is not the goal, trust is. Last week, Elliot, and in the podcast, Paul came up with this illustration of two ways of seeing faith. One is as a fortress, and the other is a path. You can see your your faith like a fortress. I think it could be labeled the fortress of certainty. People in the fortress think they got God pretty much figured out and all their questions answered and know the right responses To every question, there's very little room for mystery. But in the fortress of certainty, you have to defend the walls and fight off all challenges because any breach in the wall brings down the fortress. Perhaps a better way to see your faith is as a a brick road that we walk and trust. And you do not know with certainty the path of the road. And what really is challenging is that the road often journeys into the dark. Every brick does not need to be defended, and there is all kinds of certainty as you move forward down the path. And it takes trust to walk the road, especially as it leads you into the darkness. Because at times, the only thing you can see is the next step, even though you know the ultimate destination is to face God. Last thing. And with this, I'll wrap us up. Number five. And this may be the most important thing, okay? When you deconstruct and you doubt, don't let go of Jesus. He is the key issue. And everything else is secondary. You see, it's not your doctrine or your great theology or your convictions on all the controversial issues of our time or your correct beliefs that save you. Salvation is not dependent on whether or not you hold to inerrancy or six-day creation or believe in a literal hell or believe that Jonah was really swallowed by a whale or Job was a real person. It's not determined by your convictions on the women issue or the homosexuality issue or even on your politics. A lot of doctrinal beliefs are important. Those things matter, but they're not determinative. What matters is trusting Jesus. Why? 
because he is the source of eternal life. It's him who gives you forgiveness of sin and meaning and purpose. It's Jesus who saves you and provides a relationship with God. Not your Bible, not your theology, not your convictions. If you trust in Jesus, the God-man who died for your sins on the cross, who was raised from the dead, and now sits at the right hand of God, if you trust that Jesus, in the end, that is all that matters. So this is the bottom line. When you wrestle with doubt and deconstruct, remember this, if you get Jesus right, if you hold on to him, you will be okay. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning, a lot of us are in the space where we, we tell you we believe, but we ask you to help our unbelief. Because on our journey, we're not certain. We don't completely understand your ways or our own experience. And at times, all we're left with is the challenge to trust you. Lord, help us trust you. Help us to hold on to Jesus above all else. And we pray this in his name and for his sake and honor. And all God's people said.